My name's Carl Chittam. Uh, I'm the director here at uh, the Douse Art Museum. Um, and I'm pleased to welcome you all here today to hear from Jess Johnson and Simon Ward about their exhibition, Terminus. But we're also going to be talking about a whole lot of other things that have led to the creation of Terminus. Um, so I'm just going to quickly, for those people that may not be familiar with Jess or Simon or Terminus, uh, just do very brief introductions. Jess Johnson was born in Tauranga and currently lives and works in New York, um, but obviously is back here in New Zealand currently. Her practice grew from an analogue drawing and image making practice that evolved into large scale installations created by hand before moving into the immersive experience we see here today. Jess's work has been exhibited extensively internationally and the installation Worldwide World created with Simon was a finalist for New Zealand's Walters Prize in 2018, exhibited at Auckland Art Gallery. Simon Ward is a video maker and animator from Wellington. He makes music videos, co-directs the animated comedy series Aroha Bridge with Jessica Hansel through Pixie Films and collaborates with visual artist Jess Johnson, turning her drawings into animated videos and virtual reality artworks. Terminus, which is the uh, installation we're sitting within, was originally commissioned by the National Gallery of Australia and the Balnaves Naves Foundation and launched in 2018 as the centrepiece of a major exhibition by Jess and Simon at the National Gallery of Australia. Terminus has toured to several cities in, Austra in Australia and was toured here in Aotearoa by Tauranga Art Gallery. So, um, we're just going to dive straight in. How did you meet and how did this kind of collaboration start? I don't actually know what year it was that we met. Was it 2013? Yeah. yeah. Um, we have a very good mutual friend who introduced us. Um, and she was aware that we both knew about each other's respective practices. Uh, I had my solo drawing practice where I've been um, drawing this sci-fi world for a, a few years then, and I knew Simon through his, uh, his music videos that he made for a lot of my favourite New Zealand bands. Um, and I think our friend Rose had been You've been working together, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, so it was Rose Salmon who I'd been working with uh, together on films doing costume work with. And she was having a birthday party in Melbourne and I'd just moved there and her birthday party was at Jess's studio, so we kind of got forced together that way. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, and I think from, uh, I think it was Rose actually had said that Simon was a fan of my drawings and knew that I was a fan of his music videos, but we were both a bit too shy to talk to each other, so she introduced us on email and said, you guys should make stuff together. And when we first met, um, I had a, I had a um, little exhibition that was coming up and we just dived into uh, making our first animation together called Mnemonic Pulse. And um, from there, things just, Kind of, what's that term? Steamrolled? No, snowballed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we've been working together pretty solidly ever since. But 
So can you talk a little bit about um, your individual practices and how you sort of worked out how to bring those two things together? So, so obviously you met through this kind of social gathering, but um, there must have been something in, for both of you that sort of um, was like a bit of an aha, we're going to do this thing together. Well, like I said, I've been drawing the world maybe only for about three years then, but it was uh, was at a point where it was um, uh, quite rich and fleshed out, and I'd only been using the tools that were available to me to try to recreate these um, uh, the imagery I wanted out of my head, and my skills were uh, pen and paper and drawing, so I was just drawing these... Uh, still images of this kind of richer animated world that I had in my head and then when I met Simon he had the skill base and knowledge to be able to um, bring that world out into three dimensions for other people to see as well so yeah it was just a very nice uh, synergy of when we when we first met the world was quite ready to uh, be animated um, and then there was also all of this development that was happening in virtual reality at the same time. So um, all of these uh, things kind of, yeah, just came at a really good point. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess I was in the same position that um, the things that I'd been working on were kind of being developed in that same sort of way. Uh, so me and my friends had been making music videos and now in the kind of like in our flat, basically. We lived in this warehouse place on Marjorie Bank Street, just next to the fish and chip shop there, across the road from the embassy. Um, and it was like this warehouse place and we had like a green screen in the lounge. So the kind of, the shtick was we'd get the bands to come in and we'd film in front of the green screen and then we'd use computer graphics to kind of put them into a, a fantasy world that we'd then kind of create in the computer. Um, and we'd all been doing that in, the, in this house with my friends in my bedroom kind of thing for a while. So we had those sort of skills to translate then Jesus' drawings. Yeah, Jesus' drawings could be the world, but we just kind of took out the band, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> just got some naked people doing yoga exercises. You just touched on the fall of Melbourne. So um, Jess, you've been living there for quite a long time. And you'd uh, been part of the gallery there, our gallery. Um, can you talk a little bit about that time and the evolution of your drawing practice? Sure. Um, yeah, I spent probably about 12 years in Melbourne all up. Um, I first worked for about 10 years as a installer, installing other people's art at galleries and museums. And then I also ran this little uh, art space called Hell Gallery, which was in this big rambling compound that I lived in. And we had a band room and a little exhibition space and studios. And for every event or exhibition that we had, I used to hand draw the, the flyers and make posters for all of the shows. And ran that for about five years or something like that. But I think I probably developed most of my style during uh, during Hell Gallery and creating these posters for um, other people's exhibitions and gigs. 
And then when Hell Gallery um, finished up, I decided that I just wanted to take a year off and, and just draw full time. Um, and so that was 2012. Uh, and the evolution of the, the world, um, kind of looking back, I can kind of map these uh, different um, uh, periods of it. Like uh, in that first year of drawing, it was this um, very sort of two-dimensional, two-dimensional, um, impenetrable pattern, like a like wallpaper um, that's been recreated in this Tumblewitch room. And then after about a year, I started to like push back into the drawings and um, started to use perspective more and uh, architecture and uh, things like that started to emerge. And then maybe about two or three years in were when the figures started to emerge as well, at the same time as the alien deity. So it's been this very kind of organic dredging process where the, uh, like each drawing just kind of follows the next and the, um, the relationships between all the different uh, deities and the humanoid figures and the architecture and the rituals and things like that, it just, uh, yeah, it just becomes more complex and evolved over time. So yeah, it's been 10 years, I think, that I've been drawing it now in my, in a, the quiet, um, Simon doesn't like this word generative, but I, I find them I find them quite uh, self-generative now, where I don't have to think too much about what the draw about the about the drawing. It's just like there's so many uh, elements to it; they all just kind of mutate and and form new imagery. Um. So what I mentioned before in uh, Jess's bio was that. Uh, when I first came across Jess's practice, she was actually making uh, quite large installations um, with quite pattern-based um, uh, wall works that your works would then be installed within. Um, but they were all done by hand. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of the step from doing your drawings through to this kind of experience that we're in, where um, actually very little of the, the installation itself is handmade now? Um, in terms of the way that we install it. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that evolution and how maybe your collaboration has added to that? Yeah, I think, um, I think the installations have evolved at, uh, as a result of um, more institutional support. I think it's the same with Simon, like the more you know, when I, when I was showing at smaller galleries and having to uh, create everything myself, then, you know, I was using what was available to me and I would hand paint all of these environments. And uh, as we got given more opportunities at bigger galleries and institutions, there's obviously more resources to draw on and you get to be more ambitious and, what you can create and the environments that you can create. So, you know, there's resources to build things or do gallery scale installations and wallpaper and vinyl. So, yeah, so it just like, a, you just start to think about what is possible outside your own, um, your own steam. 
um, thing I've kind of found with Jess's transition from making the installations herself is like Jess worked as an art installer for quite a long time, so she kind of knows a lot of those techniques of how to create other people's installations and like all the amazing techniques. But then she's only one person, so she can do these really amazing things, but the amount of time it takes to do it by hand is quite incredible. So as soon as you've got more resources to do like a digital print of something or a larger scale thing that would take maybe a month to paint, makes a lot bigger things more possible, I guess, yeah. I think also like the digitising of all of my drawings allows it to become all these different mediums as well. Like every time I finish a drawing, I take a high-res scan of it and then that gets sent to Simon and it starts getting broken up into its various elements and like the whole drawing will get cannibalised and broken down into like these different uh, assets and so we've just got these huge bags of archives of symbols, architecture, archways, whatever and all of those assets get to be repurposed and turned into uh, you know, fabrics and wallpaper and flooring and, and, and structures in the real world. So. And it yeah. keeps growing every time Jess does a drawing, the toolbox gets bigger and bigger. So. Well, that's a good, good entry point to turn this, really. So can we uh, maybe just talk a little bit about how this particular project came to be? Um, obviously, it was commissioned for the National Gallery of Australia, but was there sort of a germination project or process prior to that that kind of you were thinking, oh, it'd be really great to do this massive installation? lots of VR and lots of other components to it. Ah, well, I guess when, uh, maybe we could go back to Mnemonic Pulse, which was our first kind of video. Um, when we were doing that, we did this, it was pretty much like a virtual reality video. So um, the camera's kind of just walking through a space and you get taken through three of Jess's drawings. Um, and at that time, virtual reality was just kind of becoming available. So, um, halfway through it, we were like, oh, we should actually make this into virtual reality. So, we sort of were slowly heading into the virtual reality direction from then. Um, and we made the next work we made was a virtual reality uh, work that showed at the National Gallery of Victoria. And then, by the time Terminus came around, it kind of coincided with the National Gallery of Australia saying, oh, what can you guys do? And we've got this big room in our basement that you can kind of have. Um, and so we were like, okay, let's just make a huge map and all these virtual reality things. Yeah, we just kind of went the craziest possible idea. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, the, yeah, it started, it started with the space that they, um, uh, allocated us at the National Gallery. Like they wanted to do a show with us, um, and they gave us this space, which, like Simon said, it was this gigantic cabin in the basement, and it was uh, the, they had all these stipulations, like you couldn't uh, 
doing it, you couldn't hang anything on the walls because it was this like protected slate or something like that. So it was this like gigantic space which they had no idea what to do with. It's really hard to show contemporary art in. And they couldn't, uh, like it had massive skylights all through the roof, so you couldn't sort of have anything that was light sensitive either. Yeah, and so I think to the most like the starting point was really like the floor map where it's like, oh, we can't do anything on the walls. There's all these restrictions. Um, I think we, we, we just both uh, got stuck on this idea of having like this big Dungeons and Dragons style uh, floor map which people had to navigate um, through this like cavernous space and then we came up with these like five different rounds and each round would be like a portal into this geographical location or experience in the, in the world and then the installation kind of grew around that and we started thinking of the installation as being like this um, kind of candy coating of the, the real artwork which was uh, the virtual reality artwork which could only be experienced inside the headsets and we kind of always really liked that idea it's like you can't take a, a picture of the you know you can't take a picture of the virtual reality experience and people and, try it <laughs> It's interesting to hear that that's really just a sort of entry point into the virtual reality. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about was other collaborations. So um, the virtual reality has a, um, anyone that's done the virtual reality, you know there's a soundtrack in there, or a sort of soundscape that goes with it. Um, there's also these beautiful rugs, slash quotes, slash uh, textiles, um, that are hanging behind us. Um, which are also a collaboration. Um, can you talk a little bit about this idea of collaboration in both your practices, but also in terms of two minutes? Uh, yeah. Um, so about Andrew. Andrew, yeah. So, so a third, a third uh, very important member of our uh, collaborations is Andrew Clark, who provides the, the soundtracks for all our animated and VR pieces. And that music is this really important like psychological hook that takes people through through the journeys. Um, I think all three of us we have quite a lot of autonomy in our respective parts. Um, like I'm just and sort of very solitary as well. So I'm usually just at the studio drawing by myself. Simon's in front of his computer all day. Uh, Andrew makes music in his bedroom and we all live in different countries as well so whenever we have the opportunity we get together on these like kind of intensive hothouse periods where we get to share a studio and we generate a lot of ideas then and then we go back to our respective holes and 
um, working our stuff together and are just in constant chat, video chat with people of that each day. But yeah, with like, I think we all work quite, like I said, in a solitary way. And with my with my drawings, um, once I've finished a drawing, uh, I I like the idea of it just kind of getting filtered through other people's imaginations and going out into the world and other people do stuff with the imagery and it gets morphed and changed and then that kind of gets recycled back to me and the world like keeps growing through all of these different people's um, fingers getting in it. So like with the quilts I, uh, I make them with my, my mother um, and she's based in New Zealand um, and I'm in New York so I'll get these fabrics printed and then send them to her in New Zealand and we go back and forth on video chat and talk about the compositions and borders and things like that. Uh, <laughs> um, or I should talk about Penny Smith as well who's um, kind of our fourth collaborator. He's the kind of um, super brain coder uh, game developer guy who kind of like takes all the things and then turns it into virtual reality that you can kind of, yeah. So I, I work with Kenny quite closely to take the drawings, take, put them in the computer, and then he kind of facilitates this virtual world that people can experience. So, and he has a lot of input and he's part of it as well and has some great ideas. And then uh, all the animation and all the models and stuff, they take quite a lot of time. So I usually have um, other friends who I've worked with um, on music videos helping as well. Um, Dan Harris and Charlie Treefrog and Luke Rao from Lower Hut. <laughs> Luke, Luke Roy. Yeah. Um, yeah, and they're, they're the team that I work with. Yeah. So it's quite, it's quite a big team that kind of creates this because um, I guess it's that thing that you quite often get with projects like this where you've got, um, so obviously you guys are the originators of Project, so your names are on the, the project as it tours. But I know when we uh, first opened this show, you sent me the list of all the people that needed to be acknowledged, and I was, and I don't know why I was surprised that all of those there were so many people in the background. But um, it's often that that thing that there's the there's sort of people up the front, and then there's all these people in support behind to make these projects happen, and it's great that you have to acknowledge all of that. Um, I just want to touch on this idea of um, the world that you're creating, or the worlds, or the universe. Um, uh, we were talking earlier about whether there was a narrative and um, how you think about developing particularly each virtual experience, whether, whether it's got a storyline. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I am. Um, narrative is a little bit of a bugbear for us lately because our, our current project is uh, trying to make a, a short film. Um, ideally we'd like to make an animated feature film but uh, the way that I've drawn this world is very um, uh, resistant to the idea of like a linear narrative. Anti-world building. Anti-world building. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I, um, I think every drawing that I do I kind of think of it as like this little pinhole uh, window into the universe and and then uh, Simon kind of connects up 
those pinholes. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense whatsoever. But, um, but when we were trying to uh, come up with the uh, the structure of terminus and these VR experiences, um, we started more with this emotional narrative for each piece where we had a certain feeling that we wanted to impart with the with the VR experience. So like the feeling of being lost or the, the feeling of uh, being disorientated. Yeah, we were trying to, I guess because this is the biggest thing we've done, we were, and we both share quite a big love of like science fiction movies and stuff like that. So we were trying to make kind of a movie version, a movie in VR, but then also it not have a story and it being anti-world building. Um, so we kind of dissected the kind of formula of what one of those kind of never-ending story or um, Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or, you know, that kind of hero's journey. Um, and we picked out the emotions and we said that's, that's the things that we're going to hit rather than like have the actual character arc. And broken into five chapters of those emotions. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that's our, this is our virtual reality fantasy film kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I think with the, another thing with the, um, the narrative and uh, how, how we want people to experience them, like uh, something that I'm very resistant to and Simon is as well, it's like we don't want to be too didactic in our storytelling or like like for me I really uh, don't like being told what to feel or how to think in terms of art or books or film and whenever I can feel uh, feel that I'm being somewhat manipulated I just immediately dig my heels in and so it's really important for both of us to like leave enough space in the experiences for people to bring their own interpretations and connections. Um, it's like, you know, the audience is the missing link <laughs> like activates the work or something like that. But yeah, so it's, it's not this kind of didactic storytelling, it's just kind of creating a, a uh, open environment for people to make their own psychological connections and get taken wherever they are bring these in. Yeah, because I was going to ask which one's which feeling, but I won't know. Oh, you can, yeah. yeah. which one do you want to talk about? Pleasure Crossing is that one. Yeah. Um, that's the kind of, you've arrived at the kind of, um, at the wide open world and it's um, something different from where you've been before and you kind of have to, You've got all these paths going that you can try and make a decision as to which path you want to choose and then it gets a bit scary at the end. Um, and then known unknown is kind of like the chill out zone when you've been kind of wandering around the wasteland for a while and then you suddenly appear in like this uh, relaxing glade and you can kind of chill out for a bit on your quest. It's like contemplative, can even say yeah. that word? Or... <laughs> Yeah, or like a mirage or something like yeah. that when things are revealed to you. Yeah. And then Gog and Magog, which is the vertical one, where you've got the two um, 
the two uh, spiders were called Gog and Magog at the top of this like, tower. That's like the the one where you're like closest to the belly of the beast or danger. Um, like what, what are some parallels in the films? Uh, like the tower and any of those kind of yeah. like scary films where you've got the giant spider that's at the end waiting to kind of like eat you. Yeah, you can but... Nice <laughs> What about scum and That was kind of... Uh, you're, you're on your journey and everything's feeling very... It's like too much and you don't know what way is up or down and um, you don't know where to go from there and you're a bit lost and things are feeling pretty terrible. That's, that's that feeling. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then there's Tumwatch. Yeah, that's my favourite. That's the um, the psychedelic one. Uh, <laughs> so that's at the uh, um, that's at like the end of your journey when uh, when like your life is flashing before your eyes and you're going through like the transformative experience. Uh, our actually our reference for Tumblewitch was. Um, the nightmare boat scene in Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, when you're on the on the boat and there's all of those uh, sensory things kind of flashing flashing before you. So that's our our version of the nightmare boat ride. And it was also that um, it was quite fun to make because it was the catch-all for all of the all of the kind of disconnected pieces that didn't fit in all of the other experiences. So. Um, yeah, we just got to jam them all yeah. together and <laughs> just throw them at you as quickly as we could. <laughs> or throw you through them, maybe. Um, so there's a couple of things in there for me, but uh, one of them is, uh, which we'll come back to in a minute, which is going back to those kind of movie references and story references, particularly um, those older movies like Never Ending Story, Labyrinth, and of those sort of vein. Um, but I'm also interested in the titles how you come up with these titles and whether they, they actually mean anything or whether they're, they're sort of, again, an expression of a feeling? Yeah, the, um, the titles are... So if, if anyone's familiar with my drawings, I use text quite a lot and it's this kind of strange hybrid language where uh, it's like the... The, the titles and the language as I'm drawing is a very important part where um, it's like the language of the world is forming at the same time as the imagery or something like that. And quite often like the title will be the starting point of the drawing where it uh, gives me the, the, the emotional tone of the drawing or something like that. And the title and the words are like the scaffolding which which all of the imagery kind of gets built on. Um, so it's very, very important in the drawings, but when I started uh, working in animation and VR, it's like the, the language and the text became somewhat redundant. It's like, a, uh, yeah, the, there was no, nowhere really for that to fit into the, uh, fit into the VR itself and the animations, but um, yeah, so the, I guess it's the titles of each experience just occupy that same um, 
that same uh, place that it occupies in my drawings, um, where it gives it gives like this tonal kind of uh, entry point. Like I I play around with words a lot, and like some of them have direct references from science fiction I read, or like kind of, and I muck around with letters and spelling and and just get things until they fit something in my head. But yeah, like threshold crossing, uh, like to me that was um, that was like the first experience that we made and it was like stepping over a threshold into this, you know, portal into our sphere. Um, yeah, they, they all like, they all uh, have like a tight correspondence to something in my head. But so just talking about those references, particularly the movie references, we were talking earlier about these movies like Never Ending Story and Labyrinth and how they're very generational. So there'll be people sitting out there looking very confused, probably, because they've never heard of it. Um, could you talk a little bit about those references and why they were important as, as sort of gener generative things? Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I guess another common thing that Jess and I have got is we grew up in small towns in New Zealand, so we were kind of in these um, small places, but we had access to these movies that were very expansive, where you could go on a massive adventure and go to other places um, while still being in Hawke's Bay and Tauranga. Um, I guess they were kind of like a real they've made a really Im amazing impression on like us when we were young. And uh, yeah, I just wanted to make them. <laughs> I wanted to, yeah, have that kind of amazing, uh, sh share that, oh, share it? Have other people have that amazing experience. So um, managed to be doing it in this weird yeah. way. I think like, we've, had, we've had a conversation about like a lot of the artwork that we make is the, is the artwork that we <laughs> would have liked to have experienced yeah. in galleries when we were like 13, 14. And yeah. So it's just we're making art for our younger versions of ourselves. Yeah. Like, well, I mean, when I grew up in Tauranga, there was, there was no art gallery. Like I, I, didn't, I didn't get to visit an art gallery. Um, uh, maybe when I went to uni in Christchurch, and so I experienced the art world through uh, the cover art of VHS tapes and, uh, you know, album artwork and posters and books. And those were my, my little windows into, into this wider imaginative world outside the little small towns that we're in. And, um, yeah, I think a lot of what we make kind of uh, goes back to our experiences with kids in these small towns. Yeah, just making stuff for weirdos who didn't really have anything made for them. But it's, it's funny, like today, it seems like all the Marvel movies and all those comic books that we were reading is now mainstream. Yeah. So it's, yeah, the geeks kind of rule the world now. <laughs> <laughs> just now we get to it. Yeah. Weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about, um, we've, we've had lots of people, and I had this experience as well when I first came into the exhibition and it was finished here, that it felt like you were walking into a, a gaming environment. And particularly with the projective works that we have up here, Gene Tegan, um, 
this thick kind of old school platform game like Donkey Kong and those sorts of games, it's, it's, it feels like a very um, direct reference to that. How does that kind of play into the, to the world building? Well, it's probably another same thing as far as like movies, uh, video games was another little gateway for me at least when I was growing up. I had a Commodore 64 and I could like, the graphics were pretty bad, but I could like journey on my little, with my joystick. <laughs> um, was it the same with you? Or? I had a, um, I had a NES console yeah. and I, I think I had three games and I played them to death. But um, I've, I've always been interested in gaming culture but haven't been an active player myself. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe it's like that's the immersive world building things that we kind of know. So we're kind of shoving whatever Jess makes into that zone. I think there was, I mean, the, the inception point for GeneTech Archaic, which is the pixel-rendered uh, um, side-scroller uh, video work there, was, it's also that kind of imaginative leap as well, where um, it was, when we think back to like playing these uh, really rudimentary like pixel games when we were kids, it's, it's like that uh, your brain would fill in the gaps or it would create this kind of rich tapestry of imaginative experiences out of these, you know, just really basic rendered pixels and it's... Um, yeah, leaving space for the audience. Yeah, 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 something like that. I really like the box art, that was, I was obsessed. Yeah. Well, in Christchurch we were like, okay, we, we did a, when we made GenTeka, it was for Christchurch Art Gallery, so the videos were in the foyer, and then outside there's a giant mural that's on the um, car park entry. Um, so we were trying to make the game on the video screens and then make the box art on the mural um, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Like the highly rendered version of the shitty pixel graphics. Yeah, that's oh, where we were going. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, now I'm going to change the tone a little bit and talk about um, how things have changed in your collaboration since the beginning of 2020. Obviously for everybody it's been a big, big 18 months um, for the whole world. Um, can you just talk a little bit about uh, that, that sort of transition, I guess? Yeah. Um we can talk how, how 2020 started. Uh, <laughs> Simon had been trying to get to the US for uh, a residency that we were meant to be doing together, um, but his visa kept getting denied. And then finally his visa was accepted for us to show our work at the South by Southwest Festival in Texas. And so at the start of the pandemic, Simon was basically en route to the US and I had, I had, was about to drive a truck of all our gear and artwork to Texas and uh, then Simon landed in New York, festival got cancelled um, and very next day everything started to uh, <laughs> go very pear-shaped. We, we spent a week pretty much in Jess's apartment as New York closed. 
Um, I think we went out for sandwiches and pizza one day, so it was, yeah. We got a lot of work done in that week, that was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and we made the most of the time. But yeah, I quick, smart, hightailed it back to New Zealand before all the waters closed and did my two weeks of self-isolation in the basement of my girlfriend's house. Um, and then New Zealand went into lockdown a week after that, pretty much, so. And I was like, this is great. I'm used to just working at home. This will be amazing. But some kind of like the, either the anxiety of the whole situation or just like all the world, everything um, just was like this big weight and um, I didn't get as much work done as I thought I would. Um, did you feel it? Yeah. Um, I think I, I had a similar thing right at the start where uh, most of what I've been complaining about over the last few years is all of the uh, administrative or logistical parts of being an artist where uh, planning exhibitions or um, you know, all of the emailing and Trampoline and all of that, so in one fell swoop, all of that got wiped out, and and I was like, oh, I've got all the time in the world to draw. But um, being in the the US last year, especially New York, um, it was a, a lot of uh, social upheaval and the political situation and the pandemic and Black Lives Matter um, and then the election. <laughs> it was <just> massive snowball. <laughs> Yeah, it was, uh, it was, yeah, probably for the first time in my life I wasn't able to escape into that world of, world of drawing because it was just impossible to ignore what was happening outside. One, one thing I did find amazing was the amount of support that uh, the New Zealand government put into the arts during that period. The, um, like the music industry and the um, Creative New Zealand also the amount of money that they had to help out artists during that period and just get them through this crazy thing was America, not so much. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, Did um, you get your cheque yet? Do you get the cheque? No. Is there a cheque? <laughs> Everyone's talking about this cheque. The 1400. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was 800. It's gone up to 1400. It's fine. Um, yeah, so... Uh, I was very focused on getting back to New Zealand all, all year, um, so I came back just before uh, December. Um, got out of quarantine in time for Christmas and got to spend it with my long suffering parents, and they were very happy to have me here. But yeah, it's, it's been, um, it's, it's quite hard, it's been uh, quite hard to plan life stuff and the current global situation. Um, New York was feeling very tenuous uh, last year. Um, uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure where my future is going to be and I'm kind of just like making life up as it goes along at the moment. <laughs> so I've got a return ticket, I don't know if I'm going to be using it. Yeah. Um, what's, what's on the cards now? Um, we were talking about you've got a residency coming up. Uh, we're off to Coromandel on Monday for a residency at Driving Creek Pottery. <laughs> zone <laughs> and, and model railway um it's a it was a studio that was there was barry brickle studio who's a new zealand potter um and a railway enthusiast so i hear and he built a railway to get the clay 
from in the hills and then down to his studio and also because he loves trains. Um, and it sounds really amazing and I'm really <laughs> looking forward to it. Um, don't know what to expect, I'm really excited about it. And uh, just to have that opportunity to just be somewhere for three weeks to work on a thing with Jess, because we always get a shitload done in the very small amount of time that we end up together. Uh, we're working on another virtual reality thing, short film, lots of things. <laughs> yeah. Lots of things uh, happening and actually finished something. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but this three weeks is going to be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Looking forward to the results. Um, okay, does anyone have any questions for our Very happy to answer questions. So something that uh, kept me sane last year in Brooklyn was I started uh, looking after a colony of stray cats that lived in a truck lot. Um, I'm assuming that's who you're referring to. <laughs> um, the little neighbourhood that I moved to, oh god I'm just going to talk about cats for 20 minutes. The cats are doing well. Um, I, my friend Bobby moved in with me during COVID and he stayed on in my apartment. Um, he visits them twice a day, feeds them. Um, it's been terrible weather in New York, so there was really big snowstorms. Um, and so he moved uh, Darlene, who was one of the older senior friendly cats, into the apartment. And we're trying to find a home for her at the moment. We've found homes for all of the friendly ones apart from, and so it's mainly just the feral ones that wouldn't be able to be housed to it and still left in the truck hop. But the more got winter shelters, they get fed poached chicken and, uh, yeah. I did a fundraising print where I um, raised money to uh, keep all these cats fed and vetted and looked after. You got the scars to prove it. <laughs> I do, I nearly lost an eye last year. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? can be about anything. I try to 
uh, nail it down too much and put it into words, it kind of can contract it too much and kill it. Um, yeah. There's no list of appendixes here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Was there another question down there? Yeah, I was wondering um, what foods do you use, like for texturing or what technology is the 3D and the lighting, how the lighting So I make all the, well, I used to, um, make all the models and do the kind of start of it in 3ds Max. Um, and then we use Photoshop to cut out all of the scans and Jesus drawings, and then pretty much just like Oh, for anyone who's not familiar with that sort of stuff, it's just like how you would um, make like a paper cutout box and kind of glue it together. So when you're making like a a paper cutout box, you've got four, oh, six, six, <laughs> six, six faces on a box, um, and you fold it together. Um, we pretty much work in the same way, so we've got our six faces that you fold together to make an object and I paste a bit of Jess's drawings on each of those six faces um, and fold it together in the computer and use Photoshop to cut out the drawings and do, do some 3D stuff like that. Um, but then when they become more complicated like a crazy architecture thing like this, um, it's a box with like nearly a million faces kind of thing. So so that's where the kind of computer comes into it and help from my friends. <laughs> yeah, so 3D Studio Max to do the models and then Unity to do the integration into the virtual reality. So, yeah. Hey, um, first of all, thanks for making such amazing art. Super cool. Um, I'm really interested in like your your artwork reminds me a lot of things that I've seen in like lucid dreams and also being on certain substances. <laughs> um, and sometimes when I'm in those spaces, I get the sense that there's other intelligences that are that are communicating to me. I was just wondering if you feel that way about your art, if it like it's in your head, but do you feel like there's some other world that's trying to sort of manifest itself through you or you don't have to answer this question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I really I don't I don't know. I don't um, but I I do receive a lot of messages on Instagram from people who say that they've seen similar worlds, similar imagery on their own uh, psychedelic experiences. I was quite interested in um, DMT for a while um, because I was receiving so many messages about uh, people saying that they had uh, seen kind of similar entities on a DMT trip or something like that. And and I was reading about like, yeah, there's, a, there's that commonality of experience that um, people do seem to have on, on DMT, um, uh, where there's all this like self-replicating geometry and um, these entities that they, um, that they engage with. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm sure like it's tapping into some kind of deep psych stuff <laughs> that uh, we all have. 
um, locked away in our brains somewhere. Um, but yeah, that was quite a garbled answer, but I suspect so, but I'm not sure. Uh, I also agree that uh, this show was like one of the first psychedelic experiences I've had, not on drugs. <laughs> uh, would you guys be able to talk more about narrative or, or the rejection of narrative or how you would sort of how you have to sort of play with narrative? You know, you, you want to make a, a, a feature film, you know, and like the expectations of, of how that works versus what you're using, your material for you. That's, that's all the stuff that we're trying to navigate at the moment, like how to make a film without telling a story. Um, and it's hard. <laughs> um, we, oh, we started out by looking at documentaries like Microcosmos and how, how documentary makers can tell a story without having like a central character um, and keep everyone kind of that's right eh? yeah and those um, Baraka and all those kind of movies so yeah, trippy nature documentaries yeah yeah what kind of stories are in those kind of things and then treat the Jesus world like it was kind of a like we were going to document it in that way without telling a story and yeah, in a traditional feature film kind of way. Yeah, it's really hard to like break with storytelling convention and and still engage the audience without it being like some indulgent dream sequence. Uh, yeah. Um, and um, because all the humanoid characters are supposed to be clones, so it's, it's quite hard to kind of have a central character when everyone's clones. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, we're struggling with it a lot. Um, Is that us talking about it some? Yeah, it's not your stuff. So 
Um, I don't know. I've, I've got garbled feelings. Yeah. <laughs> we'd, we'd definitely not be uh, devotees. Um, yeah, like I, I, I'm equally repulsed by a lot of it and a lot of the implications. I think with any technology, it can go as dark as human nature can go and and as light at the same time. But um, I, yeah, I don't, don't know which way it's going to go. But we, I think we talked earlier about, um, I'm not sure if anybody saw the To The Moon experience we had here, the Laurie Anderson collaboration, um, which was a slightly different VR experience, but um, you had controllers so you could um, animate your experience in terms of direction and, and movement. And we were talking earlier that you felt that um, you kind of wanted to control that experience more yeah, that's, that's, well, it's a good point that we're actually limiting the scope of virtual reality. Like, we could put controllers in everyone's hands or have people be able to see their hands and actually use their hands, but we've chosen to not do that. It's almost like we're using retro virtual reality yeah. for this. Yeah, that's been really um, something, again, that we have been resistant to, is like to... We want to restrict people's agency in that world um, and my feeling is that if we gave people controllers or the ability to like teleport around or you know pick things up or build things it's it's then people become little gods and they they want to take control or ownership of that world and they'll start to build things or destroy things and fuck it all up and it's not their world to do that so um yeah. Yeah, I went to a talk with um, one of the chaps from Weta Digital who was, they were doing some sort of, um, like a hobbit experience where you were a hobbit and you were on a giant pile of gold and there was a dragon in front of you. And then suddenly they gave people the ability to have feet and have hands. And they found that as soon as they did that, people stopped looking at the dragon, stopped looking at the goal. All they were doing was just looking at their feet. <laughs> and all this stuff was happening in front of them, but they were just looking at their feet. Yeah, which is amazing, but also not what they wanted them to look at. Yeah. <laughs> cool though. Is um, any of your artwork designed or made to be maybe critical of anything in the real world? Or is it just like creating worlds that you like creating? Um. Uh, yes, occasionally what's happening in the outside world does seep into the drawings. Um, it doesn't happen all the time, but uh, I found when I look back at, say, a series of drawings that I've done at a particular time, um, uh, whatever was going on outside uh, kind of has definitely infiltrated. I think being in New York last year, the works that I was making then, yeah, would definitely um, have some of what I was consumed by and worrying about um, things like the, the influence of um, social media algorithms and, um, and uh, online radicalisation and QAnon and all of the craziness that was happening over in in, uh, in the US at the time, like there's, yeah, there's, that 
that's kind of threaded through quite a few of the drawings last year. I think just being in the US for the last uh, the last five years. Um, yes, <laughs> it's not consciously, but yeah, it, it does it does get in there. So when we were in Auckland at the Ivan Anthony show, someone came, uh, saw the video where it was over there and he sort of said, oh, it's like a game, but the character hasn't got there yet. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, uh, I don't know yet. Hopefully we'll get there to a good spot. Okay, um, we're going to wrap it up there, but um, I just want us all to... Um, Give them a huge round of thanks for coming and talking to us today. It's great to have you both in the city together um, and in New Zealand. And um, I know on behalf of everybody, this has been an amazing experience to have, um, having to work here and having the opportunity to hear some of the, the kind of thoughts behind it. Not everything, but <laughs> enough. So thanks so much for your time today. Yep. Thank you. Thank you.